Okay. Welcome to The Music Reel. I'm your host, Nicola Burton. Today, I have the very, very great honour to be speaking with Howard Sherman. Howard is a theatre administrator. He's a writer and an arts advocate. Howard, we're speaking to you from New York. It's the day after the US elections. How are you feeling, my friend? Um, at the moment that we're speaking, I'm feeling completely uncertain. Um, we don't know wh what's going to happen. We, it, it, it's less of a repeat than, than four years ago than it is of the 2000 election when, when we waited for quite some time on the state of Florida and the decision about the voting ballots there. So I don't think anyone knows. Um, and, and being in a state of uncertainty um, for, for days or if it turns into weeks, it's a very unsettling place to be, especially coming on top of the fact that, like much of the world, um, we've been unsettled since since March. I know. I feel like I'm, I'm I'm still in March in so many ways. It's just been a surreal year. Now, normally in November, I'm in New York. I actually work there between for two months of the year, yeah. and so for me, it's so weird not to be there. And when I'm there. My primary objective is to see as many Broadway shows as I can, right? Go to tickets in the afternoon in Times Square, get whatever shows you can, right? Now, sure. so what, Broadway is supposed to not come back until, what, the midway through next year. So well, they've, they've currently said um, nothing prior to May 30th or 31st, whatever. Wow. <laughs> Whenever May ends. <laughs> Day, dates, days, time, it's all become a... Great. Yes, we're still in March, Howard. Well, look, because you're <laughs> the man, you understand theatre. I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're the US columnist for the stage newspaper in London, right? You're, you write for the American Theatre Magazine. So you're the man I want to ask about this. What's New York, New York like, especially the economy, without Broadway? Well, I mean, I have to say that New York is quiet. It is not, as some have characterized it, in any way a ghost town. There are people out. It's not dangerous. Uh, there aren't, you know, it hasn't become, hasn't become John Carpenter's escape from New York. <laughs> you know, that, that being, being the model by which we judge, um, uh, you know, how, what could be the worst New York imaginable. Um, it's odd to walk through Times Square. I've been down to Times Square a few times over the months and the combination of certainly the theaters and, and the offices. There, there's a lot of other business and the people on the street are because there's office buildings much of the day. It's simply not that volume of people. It's not, it, it's not like it is, I've been in Times Square in the very early morning, you know, 7 a.m., 8 a.m., where it's, where it's quiet and almost peaceful. Now it's, just busy enough that that you know the world is going on it's it's not like um uh i am legend the the will smith movie um i i reference the movies as well as theater um but but you know something's different and then going around the neighborhoods as well i I'm a, uh, my great hobby is photography. And at a certain point in the pandemic, I just said, I have to get out. I've photographed everything in Riverside Park, which is closest to me. I need to go to other places. I've been on the subway. 
I've been in other neighborhoods. It's not, and, and if you look at the numbers after what was a terrifying, truly terrifying March, April, early May in New York, given the level of infection, we're now one of the lowest rates of infection in the country. And um, so one cannot let one's guard down, but, but we are, it is not an unsafe place at least to move around. But for those of us who spend our lives in the dark, um, you know, living by stage light, not by sunlight, yeah. um, it's, it's very troubling because we just can't do that, that thing we loved. And as somebody who, frankly, when I need a break from, from theater, I go to the movies, it's just devastating. But I have to say, you know, there are people who argue we have to open up, we have to get things going from a safety standpoint, from a health standpoint, from the future of life, we cannot open up yet. And, and as much as I wish I could be in a theater uh, so many times, so many evenings, so many matinees, I truly believe that we, we must do what is in the best interest of, of everyone in the country. And that is for the moment, unfortunately, extremely painful and puts so many people out of work but until there is a, an extremely reliable treat course of treatment or uh, a widely used and effective vaccine, we, we are stuck and that's unfortunate. But enterprising theater people have been creating theater outdoors. Um, I've not seen that with the exception of the great American uh, comic clown uh, Bill Irwin created a show that he literally did on the streets of New York, harkening back to the early stages of his career. Bill did 12 performances of this little 10-minute piece. I saw six of them because it was just, it, it was a way for me to find joy, both uh, in, in someone creating the act of theater and frankly, that particular performer who I think is one of our, our great geniuses. That actually sounds like it would work so well in that city. I can almost see that. My question for you is, Howard, we were talking about the economy. How are the arts workers, like the actors, the musicians, the crew, the costume designers, people in tech that are normally working, you know, eight shows a week, how are they surviving financially over there? Did your government give them assistance? There has not been um, significant or unique uh assistance for arts workers. Um, there was 75 million additional dollars allocated to the National Endowment for the Arts uh, back uh, in the late spring, um, which was distributed through institutions. And to be honest, I don't know how much of that money actually reached um, artists and people who work on shows, it may have reached the people within the institutions and sustained some staffs, um, but that's a drop in the bucket when we look at the, the more than a billion dollars allocated um, by the UK government for the arts. Uh, they're people who are unionized. There may have been some union funds. There are great charities like the Actors Fund and Broadway Cares, which have been doing as much as they can 
uh, for people in the community. And they've been raising a lot of money in a lot of very creative and very entertaining ways that people anywhere can watch for free, even if they don't make a donation, but they should. But you're looking at one of, we're not alone in it, because this is true of all of the performing arts, um, both live and for a time recorded, you're, you're looking at an entire field which cannot work. And so how are they doing? After seven months, those without savings to use, which is not an ideal situation to begin with, um, certainly people are struggling. People people are are moving home. They're letting... When their leases let up, they're, they're going to where they can reduce expenses. Is there a flight from New York, for example, which, which is so heavy in, in the creative community? Certainly there are reports of, of people moving out of New York, but I don't think the people in the arts community have the means to do that of their own accord, which is why I say maybe the younger folks are moving home. Um, people my age don't, don't have that option. We, we have to go on um, where we are unless we make the decision that, that we truly can't manage it. And it's the uncertainty. I mean, I watch in England as people keep calling for the government to give a date certain for theaters to reopen. And, and I have to say, and I've, I've written this, is I, I truly believe the science must come first. And so the government can keep giving a date. Here we see individual theaters or the Broadway community giving closed until dates, but it's a moving target. We don't know. It is. And that's hard. It's so hard because especially, I mean, in Australia, we've got this thing called JobKeeper the government's been paying this like universal basic income if you like since March but it's really it's not sustainable and they're starting to taper it off and I wonder about the supply chains because it takes so much to put on a Broadway show doesn't it how do you make sure that when you reopen in March or even August next year that those people are still actually in the city and are able to do their job what are your thoughts on the future of Broadway I mean not just Broadway West End Sydney, what do you think? Uh, uh, Not-for-profit institutional theaters. I mean, we were ta- you're talking about the very top of the industry. I also worry very much um, because I come out of uh, a regional theater uh, background. That's really, really where I was, I like to say, raised and educated in theater was, was in those companies. What do I see? It's all interlinked. You can't talk about theater as if it's an island or the live performing arts because it's all interlinked. It all comes back to when will it be safe for people to gather and sit shoulder to shoulder uh, for several hours at a time? When will it be safe for people on stage? When will it be safe for people backstage? And it all comes back to the same thing, whether you're talking about theater, whether you're talking about education, it's, it's when does the science and the medicine, uh, the health community make it safe? Those, that, that's where we have to look. Anything else we discuss is, is reliant upon that. Um, and 
and so I can't hazard a guess. I don't think anybody who says they know can hazard a guess. Um, if a vaccine even were to come out in the next month or two that, that seemed to provide protection, it will be months before it's widespread enough. And what it comes down to, what it comes down to for theater, you ask about New York, you ask about major urban centers, it's gonna be, when is it safe is number one. When do people feel safe is number two. And in the major urban centers in Broadway, the West End, um, it's going to be about when are people feeling safe enough to travel again? Because so much is reliant in those places on tourists, not just people who can drive there or take public transit there. Um, shows cannot be sustained solely on the population that exists within a very small radius of, of those locations. Um, so there's no knowing. And, and living in uncertainty, as you pointed out, we're, I'm speaking the day after the election, just more uncertainty and more uncertainty breeds more anxiety and it does not breed confidence and the ability to, to bring everything back to normal because it's about restaurants, it's about um, hotels, all, all of these things are, are in the same boat. That's right. But I guess when you think about it, arts workers are used to a certain degree of uncertainty, aren't they? Because we don't have a nine to five job. So we do, we are already being able to cope in a world like that. So if anyone can get themselves out of it, we can. I really- Well, I we can, we can, but, but yes, there are countless arts workers who are in the gig economy. They've been part of the gig economy before anybody was calling it the gig economy. Yes. However, the difference between normal and now is that while people were constantly looking for their next job, there was the possibility of their next job. Right now, the possibilities are very limited. Some television series and have, have resumed. Some uh, motion picture activity has resumed after people being in a bubble. And to be perfectly honest, I see uh, a lot of American performers who are suddenly posting from Australia and New Zealand because they've got a TV gig or a Netflix gig and they get there and they have to quarantine for two weeks but at least they're getting some work but they have to go halfway around the world in order to get it and that's I don't think going to prove sustainable in the long run especially because it's very hard to to replicate being in an American city in a foreign city and certainly some of our stories are very specifically set in America. It sure is interesting. We never thought- You can't see the opera house. <laughs> you can't see the Sydney yeah. Opera House in the background. It's like the Jackie Chan movie, yeah. Rumble in the Bronx, where you saw snow-capped mountains in the background. I assure you there are no snow-capped mountains in the background the of, of the Bronx. <laughs> Definitely not. Well, look, let's talk about your book. So- Oh, sure. Days begun. Now, Our Town is a very popular play in America. This is Thornton Wilder. It's and Thornton Wilder. Can you tell me a little bit about this book? What's at the core of it? Why you wrote it? 
and I guess what's the it's it's coming out in January, isn't it? Next yes, year? it is. Yeah, and then how people can actually buy it. So a little bit about the book. I think it would be great for people to understand the relevance of our town. Well, I will start at the end, which is that the book is already available for pre-order and people can go on Amazon Australia or they can go directly to Bloomsbury Publishing and order it and they'd get it right on top. I'll say that again at the end. But um, what is the book about? I mean, our town is this remarkable American play and it is one in, in the US, it's certainly one of the most produced plays since 1938. I mean, it's, it's never gone out of favor and it is also done internationally all the time um i mean it's not it's not that you see major commercial productions constantly but it is done in institutional theaters uh it's done in uh colleges in schools it, it has a huge huge life um why did I write it? You, you, you gave me all the questions all at once. Why, why did I choose to write about this play? Um, in large part, because it is this incredibly important play in the history of American theater and remains one of the most produced plays. And I discovered no one had ever done a book focused specifically on our town. Now, that's not to say that there are countless books about this play or that play, but it seemed to me it was worthy of that focus. There are many, many books about Thornton Wilder, who was an extraordinary man of letters in the United States, a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist and a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. Man had three Pulitzer Prizes. That's an extraordinary literary achievement. Um, and so, but, but he has been written about. You can find many, many biographies, the, the real gold standard being one by Penelope Niven that came out um, in about 2013, if I remember accurately. So we know the history of the man who wrote this play. He wrote The Matchmaker, which most people know better as the musical Hello, Dolly. Um, he wrote The Skin of Our Teeth. I mean, these are his best known works for the stage because they're his full length works for the stage. His other stage work is, is primarily one act. But um, so discovering that the only exploration of this play in book form beyond the facts of when it was written were academic uh, collections of essays analyzing the play. I'd never written a book before the, the, the scale of doing a book was, was daunting, but when uh, a, a commissioning editor at, at Methwin uh, asked me if I'd ever thought about writing a book, I said, yes, I've thought about it. And then I had to, to come up with an idea. So, so when I spoke with the Wilder office and said, am I wrong, but is there no book about our town? They said, no, there's not. So that was sort of the part of part of the reason. I find it a deeply moving play. I've found it much more moving as I've aged. Um, I saw it for the first time in my twenties, and I thought, well, that's an interesting. And then when I saw it uh, in in my late forties, it reduced me to a puddle of tears in multiple productions. 
So there's something about this play that's funny. There's a line in the play. We all know something's eternal. And I think it's turned out that, that we can't say that 83 years is eternal, but I think it's a pretty good shot at immortality uh, when it comes to, to literature. I doubted my ability to write a book and did not decided to, to define what I was writing about very clearly. I did not want to spend my time in a library. So I didn't want to spend time reading about every old production of our town because they are legion and it would take me years. And also because I've not been a researcher and that's a very particular skill. So the first thing I did was to decide that I wanted to propose a book that was about this play in the 21st century really in the past 19 years at this point. And that what I wanted to do was talk to people who had done the play. Directors and actors delve into work in a very deep and intense way. And even authors will tell you, not that Thornton Wilder is here to tell us anything anymore except with what he's left us, but, but authors will tell you that in production, there are things found in their work that they didn't even know was there. So I decided to look at a dozen productions over the past 20 years, not necessarily the best productions of our town because you'd have to see so many to adjudicate that, but productions that I thought both had a range of the way they approached the show and that seemed like they might, might have some stories of their own within them. And then through oral history, I tell those stories. And that ranges from the oldest being the last Broadway production in 2002 with Paul Newman as the stage manager, to the most recent being a production in Atlanta by a company called The Theatrical Outfit, which is one of the larger professional companies in Atlanta. And they did a very interesting thing. They did it with a cast of only 10. It's a play that when it premiered on Broadway had a cast of over 40. We don't see that much anymore but they did it in repertory with the Laramie Project, the story of um, the murder of Matthew Shepard. And, and you could literally on one day, on certain days, see the same company do both plays, one at the matinee and one at the evening, which is, which is how I saw it. And to those who might think it arbitrary, not knowing one or the other play or either, um, when, the Laramie Project was created. Moises Kaufman, who, who leads Tectonic Theater Project and who, who directed uh, the show, said, our town was very much on our minds. He said, we would interview people. And as they were realizing the trouble within their own community, they would contrast it by saying, we thought this was our town because our town has become this archetype of a happy, American town a hundred years ago. Um, it was so important, the parallels that the, the description of the way the stage is set at the top of act three in the Laramie project is identical to the way Thornton Wilder said the stage should be set at the top of act three in our town. There's no missing the parallels. It's not meant to be secret. Um, so, that was a very interesting project. And, and that's what I did. I talked to well over a hundred people about their experiences of our town. And that ranges from, 
I think the youngest person I spoke with was 13 years old huh. to, to people um, certainly now in their 80s, maybe not when they did the show, and people across the US, uh, Los Angeles, Chicago, Baton Rouge, Atlanta, New York, um, and also in England, I saw, uh, I included two British productions, one in 2017 and one in 2019, to see how people from another country approached uh, doing this play that some say is quintessentially American. And, and I think that's wrong. I think the play is quintessentially human and that's why it's survived. And that's why it's been done in so many different countries uh, over this, this length of time. And how good is it the way you've described your book and it's coming out now when we have no live theater and yes. just listening to you talk, it helps me to really see the value of, of live theater. Could you imagine what the world would be like without our town, without going to see that live, you know, how it makes you feel, how would we be? And so your book coming out now is perfect timing because you're reminding people, well, this is what we're missing. This is the importance for humanity. How brilliant is that? Uh, it may be the perfect time. It's also a terrible time because I wish it were coming out while our town was having its usual performance everywhere in the U.S. all the time. Um, but the argument for why the arts matter, why the arts need to be funded, that it's not just about entertaining us, but it is, as we've already discussed, it is about employing people. These are real jobs, they're not frivolity. And also, as with any of the arts, the ability to look at life and explore its meaning. Our Town is a very unique play it was certainly considered avant-garde in 1938 uh, for its structure. Uh, a lot of people talk about uh, the fact that it doesn't have scenery and that was its great innovation and that's not true. Other plays that same season on Broadway had no scenery. It's, it's innovation is that it is a play that is always talking directly to you. It's not about watching people talk to each other, though that's part of it. But there is this character of the stage manager who doesn't engage, except very briefly, with the other people on stage. He's there to talk to you, and he is something more than a narrator. He's, he's helping you in the audience to see something about life. And in a very, very sly way, what was this avant-garde play has not calcified. Um, there's so much avant-garde work from many periods that we can look at and say it's old hat or say it's corny or say it's ridiculous. Our town has avoided that. It, re it retains an immediacy largely because it isn't specific. It, yes, it is set in a town called Grover's Corners, New Hampshire at the beginning of the 20th century, but those specifics matter less than the, the many things which are universal, and that's, that's what has sustained it. I hope when theaters open up again, many people will realize 
what this play has to say. And even now I look at what does this play have to say and what does it mean in a pandemic? The central message of our town, I, I know I'm going on and I'll, I'll let you talk again in a minute, but this is, this, is, this is how I am. And it's first thing in the morning and you're the first person I've spoken to today. Um, our town is not shy about telling you what it wants you to come away with. Its message is right on the page. Do any human be beings realize life while they live it? Every, every minute. And spoiler alert, it does this by having the third act concern people who've passed away, who are looking back on their lives. We are not dead in the pandemic, though we have lost far too many people. But even by just being frozen in time, by not knowing what day it is, some of us who mostly are spending our times in our own houses, our own apartments for months on end, we, we have suddenly realized all of the things that we are missing. We are in a way living the message of our town. We have an opportunity though, unlike the characters in the third act who really cannot learn that and make it a difference in their lives. We have that opportunity. We will get through this. We will go back to our normal lives. It may take a long time, but what must we keep from this lesson? We need to realize the beauty that is out there every day. We must, gra must grasp it as much as we can. It's, you can't do it every, every minute. You'd go, you'd go crazy and you'd never get anything else done, but we can take this moment to reflect and realize what it is when we're so busy with getting things done that we don't realize what we have and who we have and the people that we love and the things that make our lives better. So true. And I think anyone who's missing arts and live theater should buy this book because it will remind you of the value that, that arts workers across the planet give you. And I was, while you were talking, Howard, I was thinking of all the stage managers who can't work right now and who have seen so many things happen on and off stage and are thinking to themselves, wow, you know, what's, what's the value of what we do? And for any of you that are listening, you have such an incredible value. It's more than the 4.5% GDP that you add to the American economy. It's more then, you know, all of the things that you add to the restaurants and the hotels and all those things, more than the employment, it's actually the richness of life, the wealth of life that you give the world. So don't give up. Listen to what Howard's saying. It's, it will end. Well, listen to what Thornton Wilder is saying. And, <laughs> and I will say, you know, again, you can pre-order the book now. It will be out officially at the end of January. Um, very, very close to, uh, it'll come out a week before the 83rd anniversary of the play's Broadway opening. Um, so if you want to celebrate uh, the anniversary of our town, you can get the book and then be ready a week later. Um, but this is about Thornton Wilder's message. If you don't know the play, I'm not sure that my book would make sense, but you could certainly buy the play as well. Or you can, again, I don't know what some of the restrictions are, but, but you can go online and, and possibly just on YouTube, watch 
the the show. There, um, there's a terrific uh, version that was done for television in 1977 with Hal Holbrook as the stage manager. And then there were two Broadway productions which were filmed for television, one in 1988 with the great monologist, uh, Spal the late Spalding Gray as the stage manager and the 2002 production with Paul Newman as the stage manager. I will say this, don't watch the movie. There's a 1940 movie, don't watch it. If you what? don't know our town, avoid it. Why? No, no I want to watch it. <laughs> no, because it changes the ending. Right, okay, good, 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 good call. Don't watch it, it. It's not the stage ending. There was a lot of debate about it back in the day. And the experience of our town really comes through. It certainly comes through best live, but all three of those versions that I talked about, one is staged as if it were sort of live, the other two were recorded live, um, but it needs Wilder's original ending to have its full effect, the, the movie cheats. Well, Howard, you got up really early to speak to me on, a, on the morning after the craziest day I, I think you would have had in a very long time. I have loved watching you on Twitter. I really appreciate your work as an arts advocate because we really need to get our voices out there at this time in history to support people in arts economies throughout the entire world. So it was just a pleasure to speak to you, to hear about your book, to hear about your thoughts on all of this. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And if I can just briefly say, since since you're very kind about my Twitter, if people want to find me on Twitter, I'm H.E. Sherman. Um, just all run together, no dots or dashes, H.E. Sherman. And, you know, it's, it's, it's Twitter that sort of brought me to you because I had written... Uh, I was sort of just uh, an outpouring of, of expression about why the arts matter. And, and it did go around the world. I mean, it was, it was extraordinary. You know, you never know what's going to happen when you send a tweet. And, and to send this series of tweets, some of which were in all caps because I yep. felt I was shouting, um, it, it's something like um, 7,000 retweets and about 24,000 likes. Yeah. You don't plan for that. I mean, I have 20,000 Twitter followers. It's a nice number, but I'm no Lin-Manuel Miranda. I'm no celebrity. Um, it struck a chord. And, and I think we can all continue to strike a chord and we have to keep it up. And it's hard. It's, it can be upsetting what's going on. It can be difficult emotionally. It is certainly difficult for many economically but we've got to support each other in, in those things. And I hope my message might reach some people. I'm glad it found meaning for other people, uh, you know, for many more people than I ever anticipated. And that don't stop. Great. You've got to keep getting your voice out there, Howard. It's so important because there's so many people out there that you don't realize you might make someone's day. They might be so down about this. They might read a couple of words, even if it's in capitals, and they might think, okay, I'm not alone. That's why it's so important to get your voice out there. For all the things that social media have created problems with, I think there are ways to use social media to unite us and, and to support us and, and to make sure people don't feel alone. And uh, I am not locked down alone. Uh, my spouse is, is with me 
all the time. Um, and that's great. There are some people who don't have that. And so, so we all have to put out in the world what we can, just as we're seeing artists, theater artists, who are used to live audiences find ways to use various media to continue to express themselves. And that, that is the great joy. I can only talk about what's going on in my head, but until I wrote this book, you can't say I've done, I've been a creator, I've been an administrator. I've been somebody who, who tries to facilitate the work of artists. Um, that's why I'm in this business and that's what I love and that's what I fully expect I will be spectating at and enjoying and appreciating and admiring uh, in the future. And if I can just say, we, we talked a lot about the book, but we said the title only briefly, if you do wanna look for the book, the title again is Another Day's Begun. Thornton Wilder's Our Town in the 21st Century. Yeah, it's brilliant. And Howard Sherman, thank you so much for adding your voice to this conversation and don't stop. Thank you, Nikki. <laughs>